This is Grumpy Oz Retro, Episode 5, recorded on the 30th of October, 2023. Some of the information in this podcast may be out of date by the time you hear this. In this episode, we've included a fun game for you to play along with at home. Count the number of F-bombs that Craig and I use and leave the answer in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. That's my way of saying, don't listen to this when the kids are around. Listener discretion is advised. G'day and welcome to Grumpy Oz Retro. This is Tony. Martin Crockett, sysop of SA Country Club BBS and enthusiastic vintage computer collector, stops by later for a bit of a chat. I walked in with an Apple II under my arm and a couple of floppy disks under the other arm and they sort of sniggered because they thought, yeah, right, we're talking a $2,000 piece of hardware versus, I don't know what their VAX would have been worth, several hundred thousand dollars, I would imagine at the time. Plugged it all in, got it all up and I killed their machine. (laughs) You'll hear more about that later on. But first, in the time-honoured tradition spanning all the way back to June 2023, Craig and I get together and chew the fat. G'day, Craig. How's it going, mate? Bloody great, mate. Yourself? Yeah, getting there. Um, had a few things getting in the way of the whole retro thing over the last month or so, but I've still managed to dip a couple of oars into the water. Yeah, I like it, mate. What have you been doing? What's uh, floating your boat then, since you're talking about oars? Well, the big thing I did in the last month was appear on This Week in Retro, episode 143. Dave and Chris were on it. Neil's been off doing a few bits and pieces, and he mentions that in the most recent This Week in Retro where Mark Fix's stuff was a guest. So they've been getting a few guests coming through the rotation. It's not my first rodeo with This Week in Retro. I was on episode 69 a couple of years ago. So, yeah, great bunch of guys. Scary how much work goes into that podcast. You listen to it or you watch it for an hour a week and it just seems to be so smooth and there's a lot of work that goes on in the background. So Neil, Chris, Dave and Duncan, they do magnificent work. So I feel really privileged to be invited back on there after a little while. And yeah, it's always a pleasure hanging out with those guys. Yep. No, mate, I did watch that episode. That was a good laugh, actually. You look like you're having a pretty good time. Um, yeah, I sort of dipped my toes back into this week in retro. I went off for, for a little bit, but uh, I'm back onto it now. I'm quite enjoying it, actually. You know, it's like you tend to rotate those podcasts around. You can't listen to them all. And yeah, it's just come back into the mix. So yeah, I've, uh, I haven't done a huge amount. Been busy like yourself, mate, painting my retro room. Got contacted by the National Film Archive about some Amiga demos. And I thought, thought I bloody lost a disc, to be honest. And I finally was actually, I pulled out a box full of stuff to do the podcast and there was a disser in there. So. There's that Hinch demo, uh, Steve Weizard, and then Nightmare and Ramsey Street, which were done by the Deca crew from somewhere, oh, I don't know, I think they're up in Queensland or something. So they're very cool demos. Oh, so yeah. I flipped that off. So they're opening their display in November, I believe. So video game and video game collections and machines. So it'd be pretty cool to get into Canberra and have a look at that. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. My other little bit of a score was uh, my uh, local recycler dude, I cruised through the other day and he goes, oh, I've got one of these Osborne things. I'm like, oh, Osborne, that sounds sounds cool. When you go, you know, first thing he says is, oh, it's probably worth five to 700 bucks. I went, oh, great. This is uh, not going to go anywhere fast. I said, well, maybe if it's recapped and, you know, mint condition and actually works and everything, you know, you can probably maybe get 350, 500, who knows. I said, oh, look, I can help you out with it and maybe get someone to fix it if need be. Yeah, I said, look, just plug it in and wait for the magic smoke to appear and see what happens. Yeah, a week or so later, I roll in there and he sort of rustles up and he goes, oh, oh, that Osborne. Here you go, mate. You can just take this. Well, no shit. Yeah, right. Goes, oh. Wow. Yeah. So he goes, oh, the boys thought it was a sewing machine for a starter. But uh, yeah, he said he took it home, plugged <laughs> it in, shot through for a couple of minutes and come back. And he said, oh, there was this horrid smell and a fair bit of smoke. So um, obviously she dropped a cap. Yeah. So we negotiated a carton of beer and uh, yeah, proud owner of an Osborne. And I passed it straight on to a mate of mine who really wanted the thing. So yeah, give it a clean up. And uh, I think it'll end up coming along to a Adelaide retro meet. Oh, that's great. And you made a great point there as well, Craig. If someone does do something nice for you or offers you something cool, if they don't take money for it, you've got to give them something like, you know, beer, the old beer economy. That's what keeps Australia moving. Cooper's ale, mate. Yep. Hit the spot. Yes, it's time to open the feed bag again. And this time I'm giving Craig first dibs. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Look, uh, yeah, there's a couple of guys at ARC that always sort of wander up and say, you know, hit you out of the blue that they've uh, mentioned or they talk to you about something that happened on the pod. So that's always good to good to get a bit of feedback. 
pretty much that everyone was pretty happy with what Randall had to say, and they all said, "Geez, he can talk." So that's a that's a bloody good thing. That's the the role of the interviewer, interviewee, to um, let them crap on for as long as they can. So that was really good. And yeah, yeah. And Chris came across very well as. So that was also a bit of a, a bit of a win. And I noticed on the YouTube there got a couple of hundred hits, which I thought was pretty good. I don't know about the stats for that, but I noticed CRG and the Retro Channel gave us some thumbs up. So yeah, it's good to get those guys. I like CRG. He's a pretty cool dude, actually. He's always uh, I quite enjoy his Amiga Amiga stuff. Had anything come through the feedback, mate? Yeah, I've had some stuff come past and some really interesting things at that. Like you pointed out, we've had 200 hits on episode four, which is absolutely fantastic, and we've had around about 80-odd people listening to us on Spotify as well and the other podcasting apps. And what I'll do, just very quickly, uh, if you're not listening to us on the pod, like whatever your favourite podcasting app is, do yourself a favour and start listening to us that way. Now, I don't know if YouTube puts ads on the Oz Retro Comp channel because I'm not monetized and I have no intention of ever becoming monetized. And now with Google and YouTube with ad blockers and stuff, I would suggest that if you do get ads, A, neither Craig nor I see a red cent of that, and B, start listening to us instead. Um, yeah, Craig, what do you reckon? Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I, I drive in the car, so I listen to lots of pods. That's my main avenue. I occasionally watch some of the podcasts like this Yeah, this Week in Retro. I like watching that now. I actually prefer to watch that than listen to it because, uh, you know, there's a bit of content and you can see the guys having a bit of a laugh. That's all pretty, yeah, that's my main avenue. I guess the other one was, mate, it was the CRT versus LCD. I like what you've said here, mate, the good, the bad, and the bulky. Uh, I think I just <laughs> said to you, I carried a 29-inch Sony CRT in, into the shed the other day, and, yeah, it's a fair old mammoth beast. I tell you what, they they do look cool. Uh, me, I'm a purist. I like to rock off of a CRT, but I understand if you haven't got much room and you go into the likes of Retro Nights and stuff, carting CRTs around is is, is hard work. So, but for me, yeah, I, I like a CRT, but I don't like paying to get them fixed either. Yeah, you, your opinion there, Tony? You're a bit of, bit of both? Yeah, my opinion on that, I tend to share with Linford Pickle, who made the comment on episode four, and he isn't a similar sort of thing. What, what triggered his comment about the CRTs was your request, as it were, to get tips from people on how to stop their retro area from looking like a shit tip. And he reckons that having an LCD instead of a CRT is a good way to go about it because it frees up some space. And Linford apparently doesn't like the look of some CRTs. He's not keen on the aesthetics. No, I mean, I think CRTs look awesome, but on the same token, I also am aware that they're very... They're very bulky and if space is at a premium, then an LCD absolutely makes sense. And sometimes emulation also makes sense too if you don't have enough room to have all your gear in the one spot. So I totally get what Linford's saying. I don't think it's controversial at all. And I also don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do this. This is something that I've been banging on about for years. In fact, I've got a a fairly early video of mine, which was just like a, a freewheeling kind of almost a rant questioning what a retro person actually is. And Basically, no matter how you enjoy your retro, whether it's through emulation, whether it's through original hardware, whether you're creating stuff, whether you're just buying cool stuff or whatever, there's no right or wrong answer as long as you enjoy it and as long as you're not telling people how they should enjoy the hobby, that's cool. Well, I think it gets back to that trope, the uh, going to need a bigger shed if you're going to collect CRT, so simple as that, mate. That sort of leads into the grump, but we'll get to that a bit later. Yeah, we will park the grump, but in the meantime, if you've got some feedback for us, ignore what I said before about YouTube. That's probably the best place to leave us feedback is via the YouTube comments feed. That said, hit us up at grumpyozretro.com to find out all the ways you can get in touch with us. Just interrupting the new sting to let you know that when I say 25, what I actually mean is 24. Confused? It'll make a lot more sense in oh, about 30 seconds. This episode's news isn't so much news as it is details of upcoming events, and there are a couple of really great retro events happening both in the virtual space and in meat space over the next six weeks or thereabouts. The first one I want to bring up is Rose Tinted Spectrum's charity stream. He's doing a charity stream in aid of Great Ormond Street Hospital in the UK, which is a big children's hospital over there. He's done another charity stream for them before last year, but this year he's doing a 25-hour stream on the weekend of the 11th and 12th of November, 
and he has got an all-star cast helping him, Craig. Did you want me to go through the guest list? Go for it. Okay, strap yourself in. The guests confirmed so far as of recording are Stu the Brummy, Rare's Graham Norgate, as in Rare Software's Graham Norgate. Mm, nice. Yes, yeah. Yes, Dezine, Watto Snorkers, your mate CRG, Neil from RMC, the Oliver Twins. Yes, oh, wow. the Oliver Twins. Yep, it's 25 wow. hours of Dizzy. You've got you to bear this in mind. There's going to be 25 hours worth of Dizzy. So it's the Oliver Twins, they're a pretty big get, you know, and uh, I'm, oh, well, I reckon it's, that's probably worth the price of admission alone, to be honest. Right, if they uh, dropped an Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> Timberwolf K, more fun making it, Retro Bits, Mark from our very own Mark from the Retro Channel. So we're getting a little bit of oh. Australian representation the there. Flavor. Yeah, very much so. Yawning Angel, multiplayer Ian, Super Jim. I think that's Super Jim Tendo Chalmers or something, I think. But yeah, Super Jim yep. is the tag showing on the description here. Control Alt Reese, Goldfish on Games, LTGD, and the two guests that are probably just as big as the Oliver Twins. Violet Berlin, who, if you're listening to this in Britain, you would know her from Bad Influence, which is a legendary British gaming TV show from the 90s. We never got it here in Australia, but I really enjoy watching Rose Tinted Spectrum's Breaking Bad Influence series where he has that retrospective, and it makes me kind of wish that I grew up in the UK instead of Australia, to be honest, sometimes, because between that and all the cool raves and shit they had over there back in the 90s, I kind of feel like I've missed out, but that's another story for another day. And um, some bloke with a brown couch is also going to be wrapping that up for them. Um, he also likes eating some slightly dodgy food from time to time, not naming names, but Ashens knows who he is. So you can see there, that is a pretty massive cast of characters there. Yeah, mate, that's bloody awesome. You're probably, now I'm probably going to get slayed for this, but I don't think I've ever really played a Dizzy game. I'm probably more, I was more of a Monty on the run sort of guy, but yeah, I never played a Dizzy game. Well, I've played a little bit of Dizzy. Like, I reckon I reckon I played a bit of Spin Dizzy and Fantastic Dizzy uh, on, you know, back in the day. God, I can't remember which system I played them on, to be honest. Um, I think one of them might have even been on the Mega Drive. But, but, yeah, look, Dizzy is one of those series I really want to revisit. I know that particularly over in the UK, it is a cultural institution. So, yeah, I reckon there's going to be a lot of people, particularly – over on the other side of the world who are going to be pretty pumped for this. But even someone like you know, people like us over here in Australia who kind of just may have not experienced Dizzy or only dipped our toes in it as casual players or casual observers, I think seeing a bunch of people who are really into the whole Dizzy thing, a bunch of familiar names as well as some smaller YouTubers, I think it's going to be a really fun stream and I'm looking forward to dipping in and out of it and yeah, like, it, like I said, it's for a great cause. Uh, in any of these sorts of streams, like the one Lee had a couple of months back with uh, the More Fun Making It stream, that was that was huge. I think that raised about £13,000 in the end. So it'll be interesting to see where this lands. So, yeah, it looks like there's going to be some sort of prize element to this as well. There's a big list of prizes on the description for the promo video that Rose Tinted Spectrum's put up on his YouTube channel, and there will be a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to a donations page. I can't even go through all these in the time we have allotted to us. So just just get on it, have a look, and support this great cause. Yeah, I think if you live in the UK, Tony, the uh, Oliver Twins are going to pop around your house and make you a nice hot cup of tea. That would be a great prize. That would be pretty cool. Moving right along. Another huge event that's a little bit closer to home is the Perth Amiga User Group. Now, we know them very well. We know Chris from Perth Amiga User Group very well. He's been a guest on our podcast, in fact. So, big fan of what those guys do over there in Perth. The next meet, which is the 10th meet that they've set up, so it's a big deal. There's a big X on the uh, on the demo that Chris put together for it and all that sort of stuff. And there'll be a link to the, the demo and everything else in the show notes. But getting back to the topic at hand here, it's coming up on the 9th of December from 5pm until 9pm at the Manning Community Centre in Manning in South Perth. Quizzes, prizes, there's going to be a raffle, there's going to be an auction, there'll be trading tables, there'll be a retro shop. Apparently there's a live guest speaker. They haven't 
confirmed who it's going to be. Lots of exhibits. It's going to be a really full-on event. Uh, there will be an admission fee. It's $30, but for that much entertainment, it sounds like it'll be well worth it. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Perth Amiga User Group YouTube channel. Check them out on Facebook. All the links are in the description, so get on it. And look, if you're in Perth, I would head there with bells on and probably pants as well. You don't want to be turned away at the door. While we're on the topic of club stuff, we will launch into the ARC event report in just a tick. But before we do that, just going to give Craig a shout out for all the awesome work he's been doing in the background. At the moment, he's trying to line up as many different user groups as he can from around Australia to start talking to us, to tell us about their events, give event reports and all that sort of stuff. Because we see what we have here at Grumpy Oz Retro being a great platform for the user groups around Oz to just tell us what's going on, what events they've got happening, just tell us what cool stuff they've been up to. He's already got a couple of leads and he's working at some other leads pretty hard. Yeah, and look, Tony, while we're talking, uh, around, going around the country, uh, Mark Falconer from the Mega Retro Brisbane Group, they have a meet on the 29th of November. It runs from 6.30 till midnight. It's at the Garden City Library, so if you're in Brizzy, you probably know where that is. Pretty much bring whatever you like, especially in Amiga. Check out their either their Discord channel, their Facebook page, and they actually have a pretty uh, active forum group. So keep an eye out for that. It's good that uh, we call it a cruising around the country. Awesome. Cool. If you're a member of a vintage computing or retro gaming user group anywhere in Australia, or even New Zealand for that matter, hit us up grumpyozretro.com get our contact details and just let us know all about your club and we'll plug it throw it in your chili bin and float us a computer across sounds choice bro yeah sweet ass they're gonna hate us for this well while we're at it uh tony <laughs> yeah uh, oh sorry no, i better not hum the too much of that because we probably will get a content match and don't get me wrong i love dave dobbin but uh you know, I mean, I'm sure Dave would be pretty chill. Hey, I don't think he's going to throw a jandal at us if we hum the first part of Slice of Heaven. I freaking love that song. Why Why is yeah. that not New Zealand's national anthem? Seriously, guys. Totally agree, just, mate. He's still bloody yeah. rolling around like Australia and New Zealand on that, mate. He's still playing, you know. What a legend. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, for sure. But uh, you're about to talk about ARC, whereas I'm going off on a completely different <laughs> ARC. But anyway, let's, uh, let's well. pull it back to topic and uh, go from there. Yeah, Tony, cool. It's cool that we're trying to roll these other people uh, from around the country into a bit of a single platform. And speaking of events, we had our ARC meet for October, which was first console, first computer, first demo, first game, whatever sort of floated your boat. So, yeah, we had a pretty random selection of machines that turned up. There was some Intellivisions, Amstrad 6128, which i quite a bit of a fan of, a couple of C64s. There's one of those repo 64s where you get the board and you repopulate it with all the chips. So dude to put all that together himself. Someone else had a weird looking orange C64 when they 3D printed all the keys on it. So not too sure what was going on there. I saw that in the Facebook group and I thought that looked really cool to be completely honest. And I think there should be more of that with C64s. Yeah, I know. But he wouldn't want to get the shits up over that. Um, Dreamcast, there was a Turbo Graphics and somebody had their old Handamax system there. Couple of Macs, but you know, only the posh bastards would have got Macs as their first computers. But there's some some aficionados in there that, that you know, people want to have the first computer they used at school, first computer they had at home. I know a couple of lads have got their first machines and their first school machines and their first work machines. Uh, one of the coolest things was a Sharp Twin Famicom, and now that thing look actually looks like it was made by Fisher Price. To be honest, that was like a Larish red sort of colour. The photos are up on Australian vintage facebook group if you want to hack back through it from october uh yeah it's pretty cool carl the new member he had i sold him at 1200 actually and he'd come out uh out the town he had brand new black case black keys he had a pie storm 1200 in it so yeah he was pretty happy with that that was a bloody cool looking mm. piece of kit but, snazzy yeah yeah it was really cool the highlight of the night was so rowan had bought along I call him one of the Roland brothers because I've always got the old Roland gear pumping out. He had a Derringer Grey Mini, which is called a 2600 Grey Mini. So it basically looks like a foot square synthesizer with a million bloody knobs, um, diodes, and 
all sorts of crap oh, on it. But he, yeah. God, that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mate. Oh, wow. Yeah, I saw that in the group. I thought it was a mini Moog, and I'm thinking a bit of an unconventional yeah. choice for first computer or console, but okay. Oh, I think it was just a really cool bit of kit, and he really wanted to get it out, to be honest. And he made a really sexy, bloody uh, wooden case for the thing to stand up on. He had, like, a little keyboard there that he was, like, twinkling the ivories with. I was sitting right behind him. I had my Omega 600 there. And I kept thinking there was something wrong with my monitor, but then I realized it was actually a synthesizer making these brr, brr, brr noises. So, yeah, that was really cool, actually. So if you jump on to the Facebook group, you can find it there. That, that was a really cool-looking machine, and, yeah, that, that got a few heads turning. So that was pretty cool. Next month for November, which right out of the 10th, is console night. So, yeah, once a year we have a console night. Everyone cracks out their consoles. I reckon I might bring along – I might go old and new. I'll bring an Atari 2600 original. And I reckon I've got a Tari VCS there, the new one. Hasn't come out of the box yet, so we'll pop that out and bloody crack the seal on that and load some stuff on it for the night. So, yeah, so take a look at the Facebook page and, uh, yeah, get on down to Arc Retro. With my underdogs this month, I've been... I've been a bit distracted, so no official underdogs this month. In lieu of that, just go to Roast Into Spectrum's uh, stream, any YouTuber you've never heard of before that's got fewer than 5,000 subs, they're my underdogs for the month. Nice. Actually starting to sound a bit like you're the underdog at the minute, mate, but uh, that's <laughs> all right. Like my cream's a bit of underdog as well, so pair of vintage. I, I don't know how this popped oh, into yeah. the feed. Yeah, I just I think I was looking at Atari STEs again, and I look I got an Atari ST a couple of months ago, and I was going through, watched all the videos, and I was like, oh yeah, most of them were okay, pretty much all the same. And then this dude popped up, so Power of Vintage is a he, I think he's a Yank. Am I allowed to say Yank? Yeah, bad luck. And uh, that's American. It. Yeah, that's American for the rest of you people who are not too sure if you're in the other part of the world. And yeah, he had an Atari Falcon video, and I went, oh, wow, you know, I started drooling. Then I started looking at the price of Atari Falcons. I went, Ugh. I stopped drooling. I put it in there with the Omega 4000s. But, yeah, he, he grabbed that uh, Falcon, and he pulled that thing to bits, and I was actually quite impressed because, yeah, the number of cards he actually had in the thing was amazing. And he really went through the process of what was in it, how it ran, a little bit of the history and the usability of it, and he actually uses that to put together all of his scripts. So, look, he only had, at the time of when I did this a couple of weeks ago, and he had 600 subs. He's actually up to 1,200 subs now. So I'm quite impressed nice. with, the, yeah, with the content. He's done a did a TT video the other day, and he ripped that thing to bits, and I was surprised the number of cards. I commented on his video the other day, and he sent me a link with a list of all the accelerators. I didn't really realize you could get the number of accelerators that were available for those Ataris. Uh, so I was quite impressed with that. And, yeah, which sort of leads into the old, uh, I hear the, I know there's a bit of news, the old Atari Pi Storm is in the mix. So very good yeah. way to get some RAM, hard drive, and a bit better resolution out of an Atari. I think they got up to 128 megs of RAM in it. So most Ataris only take 14, I thought. So very interesting to see which direction that goes. And considering they've got no, well, don't have a huge amount of custom chips, and that's just given that raw horsepower, I think you probably get um, that far, that Atari might actually finally be, you know, catch up to the Amiga. <laughs> uh, not really. Yeah. The only only thing about the Pi Storm, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time until it catches up, for us plebs that only have an ST or STFM, we miss out. I mean, you guys with the STEs or whatever, you can be all high and mighty with your pie storms, but, you know, some poor schmuck like me, I've only got an STFM, I've just got to suck it up. But, uh, you know, it's maybe one day us lowly STFM users will also have a chance. You could record this in mono if you wanted to feel, you know, back in your ST, not STE mode there, Tony. Us Omega users always had uh, stereo, as you know. Yeah. Anyway, drop that bit. Earlier on, we opened the feed bag and Craig hinted at having a bit of a grump. Now, we haven't had a good grump from Craig in a little while. So, Craig, let's have it. Yeah, mate. i uh, probably throw it out. It's probably a good topic, too, for people to sort of jump on the bandwagon and give their opinion Modifying cases. Look, I'm a bit of bit of a purist. You know, I'm not going to start drilling holes in Atari 2600s or you know, you know, I'm not David Murray. I'm not going to, you know, just hack to death a bloody IBM prototype. Probably because I never get one. 
But yeah, <laughs> like, well, it's sort of funny because I got a, had an old case there that I got there, 64C, and it had those burn marks that you get in it from the foam sitting in the box too long. So it looked like someone oh, yeah. did it with a soldering iron. Yeah, and I watched uh, the Retro Shack, I think, Pommy Guy, quite like him. He got in there with this uh, cement and he puttied up all the holes, sanded them back, and he spray painted it a different colour. So one of the guys in the club is uh, tied to a paint shop and he offered to paint it for me. And look, I think he did a pretty good job and I threw it uh, up on the, awesome. one of the pages. And yeah, I got to sort of howl down a little bit. I was a little bit like, oh, do, I've got a new case if you need it. Oh, what would you destroy that for? And I'm there like, oh, fuck off. I just like the case was half destroyed anyway, and I sort of brought what it back f- to life. Yeah. Was so it was, was that like a C64, you were saying? I mean, what kind yeah. of machine was it? It was a C64C. I got plenty of C64s, and like, you know, I haven't fundamentally destroyed it, but uh, I thought it came up too bad. I was going to get a sexy badge made up for it from the badge man. I'm going to call it Deep Purple. And uh, yeah, Retro brought the keys, and yeah. So um, yeah, I was a bit, uh, bit fucking shitty about the whole thing. <laughs> Grump over. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Well, look, it's one of those things, Craig, where, again, back to the feedback, trying to police or gatekeep the hobby, that's fucking bullshit. And if you're one of these gatekeepers that feels like they got a sort of things has to be done in a certain way, obviously, notwithstanding anything that's really egregious, like sticking a bloody paperclip in one of only four IBM prototypes ever made, but if it's something like this, (laughs) then just shut the fuck up and let someone else just have a bit of fun with it. That's just my... Humble opinion. Now, 64C, it's not exactly like it's a rare bird. People have done all these sorts of customizations all the time with the more common guard variety machines. You see heaps of the old bread bins where people have done them to varying degrees of success. Jan Bader had one a while back, which was an absolutely shocking condition. He was a noob and he made quite a few mistakes. But the thing is, he was honest about it. He actually showed the mistakes being made and he got held down. But the thing yeah. is, it's just a Commodore 64 that was already completely shagged looking. Totally. Um, Adrian had a uh, that Commodore 128 a little while ago, but he got a friend of his to paint and it was a really cool paint job. Yeah. To be completely honest, not entirely my cup of tea, but I appreciate it for what it is. And Adrian loves it. It means a lot to him. But he got howled down in the comments for, for that one as well. But again, I think it's great. I think it's an awesome machine. It's a one of a kind. And taking something that's relatively common and turning it into something that's unique, what's wrong with that? Yep, totally agree. Like some of those 64 cases are like 150, 180, 200 bucks, like, you know. And uh, when you've got a mate says, yeah, I'll slap it through the paint shop. Well, yeah, you just get run with it. So anyway, I'm happy with it. You're happy. That's all that matters. Holy fuck, we both got fired up, didn't we? That's probably the most fired yeah. up I've ever been on this pod. Yeah, I was fucked up because I put yeah. it up on the Australian Commodore 64 thing because I didn't put it in the world. Oh, Jesus, yeah. you know. Oh, what'd you fucking do that for? I was like, oh, if you're listening, sorry, but fucking tough shit. God, you'd think that you'd had like one of Bill Herds's um, LCD <laughs> yeah, prototypes. You're just taking a yeah. great big shit on the fucking keyboard or something, mate. You know, Jesus. I'm going to cover this fucking Apple Lisa in glitter and fucking. T- <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. I mean, that's. I mean, I mean, yeah. Look, even I would think yeah. that's a bit rude. You know, I would not encourage that. But that said, I'm. Com- I wasn't joking <laughs> when I said that I'd have uh, some lampshades as garden ornaments. Yeah. I was not joking. Well, get me to. <laughs> Bloody those other G4 so I can build myself a bench, mate. Sometimes with a guest, you get a lot more than you originally anticipate. Best known by many of Adelaide's greybeards as a sysop of SA Country Club BBS, Martin Crockett is so much more than that. A lifelong electronics enthusiast, Martin has turned this into a very successful career. And he's also managed to collect a lot of vintage stuff along the way. G'day, Martin. How you going? Good, mate. And yourself? Oh, look, absolutely excellent. Excellent. Now, with Grumpy Oz Retro, the first question we always ask is, what got you started? What was the origin story that put your head into the IT space? I left school at 18, finished, you know, was me trick in them days, year 12, Looking for a job and uh, ended up with a radio trades apprenticeship at uh, what then was Kilkenny College of TAFE. But whilst it was a radio trades apprenticeship, they wanted me to be a technician working on uh, 
Nova mini computers. So I was working on Nova 830s, Nova 1200s, um, and then later on they upgraded those machines and we had a DEC PDP 1134 and a couple of, well, it sounds funny these days, but 32-bit mini computers, which were running at 15 megahertz or something rather like that. So that's how I got my first dabble in, in, in IT, and, and that's what I was working on. We were doing board-level repairs in them days, even as an apprentice. So I certainly did my apprenticeship. Then I did an electronic technician certificate, an associate diploma in electronic engineering, diploma in electronic engineering, and a whole bunch of other sort of IT-related type subjects, programming, software, you, you name it, sort of pretty well everything. So I've got and even TV, microwave servicing, TV serving. So because I worked for TAFE, I got free access to all of their training and all their courses. So I used to basically finish work at 5.30, have tea, and then from 6 o'clock through 9 o'clock, attend TAFE courses for, for NICS, basically. So I got a huge amount of uh, education from that perspective. Yeah, I think that's where the bug sort of, you know, got me, basically. I just love electronics. I love repairing stuff. And of late, trying to save the world by not giving everything going into um, landfill, basically. I collect vintage calculators. I collect vintage radios, valve radios, and, yeah, basically IT and gaming consoles. So, um, yeah. Do you have all your original gear then that you've always sort of grew up with or your um, yes, I actually, at one stage, when I got married and sort of started having kids, I actually gave a lot of it away. And I thought, wow, that's just a bad thing to do. Um, you know, like a Mac SE30 and, and early Commodores and, and a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it I did hang on to. And maybe 15 years ago, I started getting back into things. I started to think, well, I wish I hadn't have given all that gear away. Part of that was the bulletin board when I was running the bulletin board, so I gave all away most of the hardware for that because I'd really like to bring the bulletin board back online as an IP-based thing, For but I don't know whether I've got enough backups of, of that. It's all sort of packed away in the shed. So it, that's certainly a project that I'm interested in actually doing is sort of resurrecting it from that perspective. Yeah, people to remember, I guess, yourself being one of them. That's a minor project. I've got that many projects on the go that um, a 40-hour day wouldn't be enough for me to get through with the, the stuff that I've got. I, I would have... At least a hundred different projects, and like Randall, I love retro wow. um, gear building. Um, like I've got a, you know, a an MSI machine that I'm in the process of building. I'm getting a case. There's a guy in America who's building the case that's coming across. I've got you know remakes of boards, a whole bunch of sort of stuff like that. So they just keep building up in boxes. I've got cardboard p- paper boxes that paper comes in, the A3 paper. I've got dozens and dozens of them with um, projects ready to do. Um, if if and when I ever retire, that that's what I'll be doing uh, full time. I think. Yeah, mate, that's bloody awesome. I, I'm impressed, and yeah, look, I think everyone in the same boat in this uh, hobby. If you didn't didn't work, that you wouldn't have any money, so it's hard to continue on with that's your a- hobby. It sort of goes a bit of hand in hand. So that I think that semi retirement is uh, probably the the sweet spot potentially. Yeah, yeah. So like just touching on the BBS, I know I used to when I was with, used to knock around with these Amiga guys, and we used to dial in. With our Amiga 1200s, we'd have a bit of a party and we'd always get into the old SA Country Club. Uh, that was yep. one of our go-to sort of dial-ups. And it was funny because a mate of mine, I know he worked with you and I've been mates with him since like buddy 1985. And uh, I know he worked with you at another place. And I said, oh, yeah, we're in the SA Country Club. And he goes, oh, buddy, dude at work. He runs that. And I was like, oh, shit, sure. that's bloody awesome. So, yeah, because we used to dial in and like we'd be sitting around drinking and that and dialing and grabbing bloody pictures and all sorts of crap. And we used to, I don't know whether you knew, but we used to flash the hook at 59 minutes, like flash the modem really yeah, quick. Right. And it would drop the line. And quite often, we because we'd only get one hour a day, that would give yeah. you an extra hour again. So, I don't know. Did you know that yeah, that right. was a bit of a quirk of the system? No, really I just care. write that one down. Hang on a sec. <laughs> no, I didn't care. No. When, you, when you rebuild it, mate, you'll have to put in some, uh, you know, uh, yeah, some fail safes or something. So, yeah. So That's for it. me, I I, we, we, I spent a fair bit of time on there. I thought it was pretty cool. And all, I guess for me, I always had this bit of a. I always thought sysops were like, uh, you know, I was looking at um, a scene out of uh, Space Odyssey two thousand and one. You know, where the sysops were in this room full of blanky blinking computers, and there was like, you know, mainframes and tapes wearing away. But you know, what was yeah, the, yeah. What, so a couple of questions there. What's the reality of all that hardware, and uh, and what got you into it? I guess. So I used to know a guy called, well, still, yeah, a guy called David Winfield, and uh, he used to run a, a store called Abraxas Computers um, at Salisbury. And I'm not quite sure how I met with David, and he was running a bulletin board, and he said, "Oh, we we can set you up a bulletin board." And so basically, he came in, he set up Opus uh, and Binkley Term, and we sort of got that all set up, and that was my initial thing, and that was based in Gawler at the time with a single line. 
and then got married, moved to Angle Vale, and then sort of put in two lines, three lines, four lines, and ended up with 10 phone lines into the house, one for voice, one for the internet connection, and then eight separate lines. Initially, it was running on a, a 286 running desk view, and that was pretty unstable, and I wanted sort of more lines, so I looked at different ways, so I ended up with a 386SX, and just didn't have the grunt to do it, and it was just fairly unstable, so I ended up with a, a Novell server running Novell 3.11, I think it was, or 3.15. Um, and that's where all the files were stored because you could just throw hard drives at it, as, as many as you like, for storage. And then I ended up doing effectively PXE boot uh, from 386SX machines. So for each node, there was a separate machine. So there was eight PCs, a server, uh, another machine for me to be able to access the, the network as well. So there was a shitload of hardware at one stage running that. That's when electricity was you know, at a reasonable price, not bloody 45 cents a, a kilowatt hour in South Australia. That's how I got into it. It just kept expanding, expanding, and then then I put in a Linux Slackware Linux server, and that's how we were doing the gateway to the internet to uh, effectively do very crude and fundamental uh, yeah, internet access, yeah, email and, and things like that. And that worked really, really quite well. And that's how I got some of my background in Linux as far as a you know as a skill. Uh, so that's how I got my initial connection. It was very slow. I think they had like a 64k ISDN link with you know several hundred people hanging off the bloody thing, but. It gave access and it was just, you know, the beginning of what was happening. Eventually, you know, ISPs, uh, Adam Internet and, and places like that started getting bigger and bigger and there's just no way I had the ability to compete with those guys. Yeah, eventually it just, just seemed like a logical thing to, to shut it down and, uh, yeah, that's eventually what happened. Where did you uh, sort of source your data from, like, uh, not the connection, but, like, were you dialing overseas and grabbing stuff on a daily basis? Or yeah, so... so uploading? Yeah, so part of FighterNet, there was a uh, new files uh, coming from America and uh, a mate of mine, uh, Daryl Merritt, who used to run Phonebox BBS because he used to work for Telstra. We had US robotics modems, which were you know doing 19K transfers, which were quite impressive in, in that day and age. Through other people interstate as well, they were basically doing a link into the States, picking up all this gear through FighterNet and then distributing it around South Australia. And then you could subscribe to different Amiga or Apple or whatever it happened to be, and, and your files would come in there. And then I think it was Binkley Turk would then be responsible for distributing them into, you know, into the bulletin board system. So it was mostly self-contained and mostly after itself. By today's standard of small amounts of data, but I would imagine there'd be you know, a couple of megs a day of files coming in there that would just be automatically added into the bulletin board. With Daryl, we were writing custom software to do, uh, you know, fast indexing and searches and things like that. We run um, games like bulletin board type games and uh, we'd written the, the software so you could run a game f- designed for another bulletin board system. So we'd, you know, export the data or the user information out of, uh, in this case, it was Opus, um, out of that. And then you'd massage the data and then you'd create a, effectively a file that the game itself would actually acknowledge and that would, you know, your time limits and, and your user and, and, and things like that. We had like a postcard type scenario where, uh, you know, it was free. We didn't charge anybody anything for it. And yeah, to send us a postcard to acknowledge the usage of it. And some people did, some people didn't. I got a few interesting postcards from around the world. That's when I had spare time. I don't have any spare time anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. You know, you use these things and you just go, oh, wow, I wonder how that came about. And it's, you know, to hear that backstory, it uh, yeah, sort of blows yeah. your mind, especially when you're in your early 20s and, didn't really have access to much. That was, that was very cool. It was, yeah. And, and being working in IT and having access to cheap hardware and, and I managed to score a copy of uh, Novell Netware and was able to install that and run that side of things. I mean, that's probably, by today's standards, probably several thousand dollars worth of software alone just for that. So, yeah, to have access to that and build a what would have been very sophisticated in its day and age was great. And that's working in industry gave me the opportunity to do those sort of things. And you always saw sysops as sort of gods because, you know, you didn't see pictures or anything like you do these days on Facebook and everything. It's like, you know, yeah, that's right. Those crack, cracking guys that used to crack games and stuff. It's like, oh, they were just on a different echelon. That was also a pastime of mine is it was cracking games. So, uh, yeah, my first computer, well, I, I would remember being at uh, Kilkenny College of TAFE and we used to have a uh, teletype ASR, KSR 33s, you know, the old type machines. And somebody came in with a, a TRS-80 Model 1 and we thought, what the, how, how do you get all that in this, this such a little box? And I sort of was really imp- quite impressed with this 4K of memory, 4K basic type TRS-80. 
I got to have a play with it. Basically, it was, you know, Tandy had come out to the school and basically said, this is our new hardware that's coming out. And we had a play with it and thought, wow, that's amazing. And eventually I was doing a, I think it was a basic programming course. And there was a guy there used to work for, it wasn't computer land. It was a place called Random Access. He had an Apple II. And I, that's eventually how I ended up with Apple IIs. And it, because I was working for TAFE, we were getting into microcomputers and all sorts of things like that. So, you know, TAFE started buying Apple IIs as a reasonable good education machine for people to actually learn about programming and that side of things. Just as a little interesting aside, when we were looking at buying 32-bit mini computers, so, you know, data generals and, and decks and, and things like that, we needed some way of testing these machines. So only real hardware available to me at the time was an Apple II. So I wrote a small multitasking operating system, which is not bad in 64 or less than 64K of memory. And I had split screens. So I had, you know, it was a 40 by 80 column screen. So it wasn't a whole lot of uh, information on the screen, but uh, I managed to get the screen split into four at a real time clock ticking away, doing multitasking and switching between tasks. Then we had four Apple serial cards and then that spread out to four others after that. So basically, I could walk in with my Apple II, plug in a whole bunch of connections. We had to juggle the, the wiring slightly, but basically I could plug into 16 ports of these mini computers and then I could run scripts. And the scripts were basically, here's a 10-line program in COBOL, compile it, uh, and all that sort of thing. So we could simulate a real workload and consistently simulate a workload. Data General won the contract because they were the, by far the best. We gave Prime a hard time with that little bit of hardware. And I, went, I remember going into the Institute of Technology at levels and they had um, a DEC uh, VAX 11780. I walked in with an Apple II under my arm and a couple of floppy disks under the other arm and they sort of sniggered because they thought, yeah, right, we're talking a $2,000 piece of hardware versus, I don't know what their VAX would have been, worth several hundred thousand dollars, I would imagine, at the time. Plugged it all in, got it all up, and I killed their machine. <laughs> The Apple II just gave it so much workload, the poor thing just died in the ass. And, and in fact, towards the end, they said, oh, that's really amazing that you managed to do that. It was actually written up in um, the Institute of Electronic Engineers or something rather like that because it was just you know something rather radical. And I was only an apprentice in them days. I probably spent a month or so writing code in pure assembler. That's the only way you could do it for the 6502. And we had to slow the speed down because the Apple 6502 only has a 256-byte stack. And so every time it was doing an interrupt, it was filling the stack up and with 16 of them coming in, it filled up very quickly. So we ended up slowing the board rate down to 300 board. It wasn't a big deal because it was able to squirt out the typing speed effectively. It still did the commands. And of course, the processing power was done by the 32-bit the mini computers. So the, really, the typing speed wasn't an issue at all. I'm hoping I've got the source code for it in my shed because I'm really quite interested to look at the code I wrote, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was, how old am I? I don't know. But, but uh, yeah, I'd be really interested to look at the source code. Yeah, not resurrected, but just, yeah, just curious to see how good a code I had actually written in, in them days. SA Country Club, the BBS, that was my first exposure to FidoNet. I think I was like 13 or 14 years old at the time to that developing brain, the fact that you could talk to people from all over the world about all sorts of stuff that blew my tiny little mind. <laughs> I mean, there might be somebody listening to this who doesn't know what FidoNet is and maybe would like to know a little bit more about how it works. So would you be able to give a brief explanation as to what FidoNet was all about? It came from America. I mean, obviously a bunch of enthusiasts uh, with bulletin board side of things would set up FidoNet. So basically countries were allocated a node. It has some parallels to even IP-based sort of communications. But um, yeah, so everybody has assigned a node. So I can't remember what my node number was. I know what it is in hex, but I don't know what it is in decimal. <laughs> even today, I use that sometimes as part of my password sequence because it's a, a bunch of hex numbers. Um, so basically... You'd have nodes, so there'd be some sort of central hub or multiple central hubs in America. There were files, both files and, and um, I guess, effectively forums. There were message chat areas, and uh, you could subscribe to as many that were available. And, and that's where all these messages came from. And obviously, there was a 24-hour to 48-hour delay. And if you put in a question, you're not going to get an instant response like you would these days. You'd put your question in, it would get sent off to America. If somebody was there and then at the time, they would answer it and then it would come back the next day. But quite often, it was two or three day turnaround on, on those sort of things. Key nodes in Australia would contact the states and they'd pull all the data across and they were generally sponsored. It was all done via modem. It was expensive in them days. There was no sort of real IP type stuff going around at that point. 
towards the very end, we did manage to you know, utilize one of the universities and, and get links done that way. There were different nodes. So you know, would get high-level nodes and then low-level nodes. I mean, effectively, I was an end-user node. Nobody fed off of me. I used to feed off another guy, and he would feed off somebody in Sydney, and then somebody in Sydney would feed off you know, somebody in America. So that's how it all got transported. So there was a fair delay. Considering it was a totally amateur design network, it actually worked really quite well and it's really quite impressive with the software. And then there were lots of bits of software that people had written to add you to different, you know, to subscribe and unsubscribe from different things. And they were done with text-based control files that would be sort of shipped off to America or to your node upstream. And then they turn on the access to that, either that chat group or the uh, that file um, system. Sometimes there'd be lots of files come through. Other times there'd be less files come through. I have... In them days, occasionally you would after a, a, an app that wasn't available. So you would, uh, they, uh, there's a modern term app. Nobody knew what an app was in the early mid eighties. Yeah. So occasionally, I mean, I had US courier robotics modems and, and you dial, you know, double O double one to dial out into America. And, and yeah, there, there were international subscriber dialing in them days. So, you know, your five minutes was going to cost you 20, 30 bucks or something or other. A phone call. So yeah, you weren't real keen to do it. So it, it worked quite well that. Yeah, you had these different nodes. So I, I had a local call to pick up majority of my gear. But occasionally there was something I wanted for the bulletin board that just wasn't available throughout that means. So you'd have to dial into them directly and, and pick it up that way. So, yeah, you did it very infrequently uh, because of this uh, potential huge cost associated with it. But even um, because I was a Gauler, even uh, yeah, people in Adelaide, that wasn't a local call anymore. Basically, you'd have to dial an area code. And if you put an area code in front of your number, then you were up for an additional cost as far as it wasn't a local phone call. We got around that. Somebody, Elizabeth, had two modems and they connected them back to back. And you dial into one modem, give some commands, and then that modem would dial out on the other link and you could actually get up a link. So you had two effectively local call into Elizabeth and then local call from Elizabeth out to Gawler. And effectively, you got away with it doing that way. So there were all sorts of little tricks that we used to do to try and uh, to achieve these sort of things. Yeah, it was STD. Yeah. I, uh, my mum used to yell at me because I lived in the country as well. So, yeah, STD. That's what it was. Yes, horrendous phone bills. So she'd freak, you know. But yes, I didn't know about those tricks. That's awesome. Not, not a sexually transmitted disease in this case. No, definitely <laughs> not. Subscribe to something or other. Trunk, subscribe to trunk dialing. I think well, it stood for. Depends who you were chatting to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Funny you should mention that, Martin. I actually grew up in Elizabeth, so you were a, uh, a local call for me, which is why I used SA Country Club a fair bit. But my yep. first experience with bulletin boards was with a Commodore 64. And, of course, this was like the late 80s when most people using bulletin boards had moved on to PCs or Amigas or whatever. And the only bulletin board in Adelaide that still ran on a Commodore 64 was down at Morford Vale, which, to describe that to the listener, that's like about 60 kilometres away. So effectively, the problem with someone living in Elizabeth trying to ring Morfitt Vale, even though they were both Adelaide metro area, is the same problem that somebody ringing from Adelaide would have phone in Gawler. So it was, uh, right. it could get, it could become quite an expensive endeavour. And again, you know, my mum was concerned when I was ringing this place in Morfitt Vale a bit too often because that was causing an impact to the phone bill. So that's why yeah. I started using local BBSs like SA Country Club. Yep, cool. There you go. <laughs> Interesting uh, history. I'm glad we're capturing this information because it's bringing back memories for me. Mostly good. <laughs> yeah. So, look, if you were to resurrect it, would you like move it to a modern form, modern platform today, and try and bring it all across, or you think you might actually try and resurrect the original config I'd probably like, do it, network? Yeah, I'd probably do it as a VM, I reckon, and then obviously you would be some means to take RS two thirty two type connections to modems, and, and they look like serial ports to the bulletin board software, but they're actually IP based type things. It's something I would like to do, but it's not very high priority at this point in time. And I said, I don't even know if I've got the backups still in the shed. And if, if I have, whether they're actually in a usable state. I used to do you know, lots and lots of backup, floppy disk backups, hundreds of floppy disks. So uh, hopefully there's some of that still out there. I, I don't know. I've, that little, yeah, that's another story. Um, I'm building a shed basically for half of its workshop. The other half is storage. Looks like an office inside. It's got, uh, you know, double insulated walls, it's air conditioned. It's all jet rock walls, wooden flooring, suspended ceiling. It's, uh, you know, re- really quite a high tech thing. It's probably sitting at 90%. I started it three years ago, but it's only me doing all of the trade work on the thing. So it's a big project. But yeah, basically the storeroom will be floor to ceiling with all, basically all my hardware, um, you know, sorted by category or something or other. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to sort it. It's, uh, there's a shitload of gear to go in there. 
And then the other being everybody is, oh, that's your man cave. Well, yeah, no, maybe. <laughs> There's no titty pictures on the wall or anything else like that. Yeah, sure, it'll have a 65-inch TV on the wall, but it'll mainly have my workbench and, and you know, soldering stations and, and those sort of things that so I can actually work. And I'll probably put a couple of cabinets in there with some of my pride and joys, you know, maybe the Apple III and a few other bits and pieces like that, so if anybody... Unfortunate enough to come and visit me, I'll uh, bore them shitless looking at all of my vintage hardware. Well, it'd be us. We'd be love, love to come for a tour. Well, I'll, I'll probably end up doing a virtual tour or something and put it on a, 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 a YouTube thing just because I just I think I'll be blown away by how much hardware I've got. And most of it, it was actually stored and it's now back at my house, um, but it's still packed in boxes, uh, hundreds of boxes. So there's a, an awful lot of gear that I've got to go through and categorize and work out what I'm going to keep, what I'm not going to keep. I've gone from being specifically Apple type stuff. But yeah, Apple II, Apple IIe, Apple IIc, Apple IIc Plus, um, Apple IIgs. Um, I've actually got two replica Apple ones I'm building, which is a really quite interesting project. An original 6502 CPU ceramic with its gold pins. Um, we're looking at twelve to $1,500 just for the CPU. Because I've built them um, with period correct parts, even the IC sockets, uh, uh, Texas Instruments IC sockets. So I had to scour the world to get all of these sockets and that. And, and the chips are all in the right date code. Some of the chips I haven't got yet, so I'll just put modern, you know, 1980 type equivalent chips in there. But these all need to be vintage 1972, 71, 72, sort of when that came out. So yeah, I'm building those. They're once again long term projects. But that's the intention is not, not to rip anybody off or whatever, but yeah, the chips are just so hard to come by. Yeah. Because people have built their replicas. There are replicas that are using modern components, but these are, this is a, a clone of the, there's two different boards they used. One with NTI, which is the name of the company that actually did the silk, not silk screening, the PCB manufacturer. And then there's one pre NTI. They look almost exactly the same. There's a few different components, different. But just collecting the chips from that vintage is 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 full time work. And I said I'll I'll get them up and running using some mostly the vintage correct parts, but some of them will be modern more modern parts until I can source the other ones. I reckon they're probably worth five grand a piece when they're finished, um, because they yeah there's just so few. There's a, on eBay at the moment there's a, a genuine original Apple one of which there are only. I don't know how many, less, well, less than 100 in, in captivity. Uh, this is going for $2.1 million. That's the eBay price on this Apple one. So, yeah, to actually own one um, is never going to happen, but to own a, a very close replica, really looking forward to that. Yet again, yet another project that I'm working on. Yeah, they could be waiting a little while to sell that particular Apple One because I saw an article very recently where a genuine Apple One signed by Steve Wozniak sold at an auction in the US for $232,000. So which is probably, all? yeah, so that's probably more about the price you'd be looking at, like only two or three hundred grand or, or maybe, yeah. obviously I'm surprised it sold for that little given that was signed it. But uh, yeah, yeah I, th- I think two million is probably a little bit optimistic, but from what you're saying, Martin, even spending five grand on building a period correct replica, that's actually a bit of a bargain if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, it is. As I said, it's, it, the people who've sat down and, and laid out the boards have you know, gone for that. Absolutely everything as close as possible to the, to the original. Yeah, just to own them, uh, you know, really quite exciting prospect. Apart from the Apple stuff, have you got a bit of a, is it a bit of a mixed bag between Apples and PCs and... Commodores or a bit of everything? Um, so, spreadsheet's um, not I, long enough? Yeah, pretty well. Uh, so, I made a bit of a list. So I've got Ataris, 400s, 800s, uh, STs, all those sort of things. Apples, we went through Apple II, 2E, 2GS, Apple One, Apple Three, and then all the more modern sort of you know, machines, um, you know, the LCs and the SEs and SE30s and, and, and oh, so like classics and classic like uh, Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, most definitely as a pastime of mine. I guess one of my favourite is S100 based systems, sort of typically 8080 or Z80 based type systems. I've got a couple of replica type machines that I've uh, built up. Uh, yeah, so I'm building an Altair 8800, uh, and I'm also building an MSI 8080, which are replicas. So just you know, they're, you're looking at three, four yeah. grand to get one shipped over from here, and they're probably 110 volts and not particularly uh, suitable for here. And there's a lot of work involved in them, so. Using modern parts, you know, switch mode power supplies to, yep. to make it much lighter. 
Uh, so, yeah, I've got all the Apple Mac stuff, HPs, HP85, HP86, uh, most of the Sinclair, ZX range, yeah, ZX8081, Spectrum, all of that sort of stuff. NECs, I collect, like any, collecting NECs, so I've got you know, some of their early vintage sort of gaming-type machines, the 6600, I think it is, the 8800, a whole bunch of that sort of stuff. Compact, early compact machines, portables, uh, IBMs, K-Pros, Osborns, Commodore, Pet. 64 plus 16, 128, only Amiga 500s. Um, there's just too many different Amigas to acquire and purchase in that side of things. Uh, MSX machines, I know Randall talked about a guy called Sergi who did a, the Omega machine. I've got one of those and I'm in the process of building up. Cool. Plus, I've got a couple of other standalone type Panasonic and Sanyo and a few other MSX type machines. One of the things I would look, and you actually discussed it on one of your channels. Somebody was flogging a, um, a deck PDP. 11 or something rather locally here in Adelaide, which I've never come across. It's my dream to actually own a, a PDP-11 of some sort. But there's a thing called a Pi DP-11 and a Pi DP-8 using uh, their replica front panels, but scale down. And they're using a Raspberry Pi running SIMH um, to do it. But it's they're pretty good. And you can run all the, you know, boot their operating system and all that. I've got a couple of those that I've built up. There's a guy called the High Nibble. He's done an MSI 8800 replica. He's not using a Raspberry Pi. It's using one of the smaller and maybe Amtel microcontrollers or something rather like that. That's he's done a really good job. And the quality of I, I've bought professional gear before. Then you pay good money for it. He's doing it as a, a hobby, as an amateur, effectively. And the quality of the the, the product and, and even the packing, like the switches, he's got replica switches. The the cardboard cutouts just machined exactly the right space to hold these things in there. It's like a really quite professional kit. I've built one of those up and that works like a dream. Uh, and then there's, there's another one. But in addition to that, I've got, if you name a brand, there's a good chance that I have it. And, and I guess part of this comes from the fact that when I was working for TAFE um, and they were getting in different hardware to look at and that sort of thing. So I, you know, you know the Apple II was a machine, the, the Tandy, lots of different machines sort of come across my path. And I, I just, I don't know, I'd see one and think, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I've got to have one of those. So yeah, add, add it to the collection. And then once I've got one, you think, well, there was a mo- another model that was better than that one or you know, the model that came out after. So I have to do that. So I like collecting sets, sets of machines. Yeah, obviously with Apple, uh, an Apple Lisa would be nice. That's on my to-do list. The uh, twentieth anniversary Mac. There's another one. Uh, I would like one of those, but that's also on my list. But I've got majority of Macs. I love retro stuff. I love lots of different devices that people are coming up with. So, uh, you know, a Commodore sixty-four. You can get a you know a fifteen forty-one drive emulator and, and things like that. Whilst I've got genuine drives, they're they're all SD-based things. So, majority of the machines I've got, and I found one interesting enough for some of the early NEC stuff uh, today this morning when I was looking. So I, I love those. I try and buy them as kits and build them up. A, it saves money, and B, it's just another project that I could add to my list that I've never got around to finishing. But uh, um, I just, yeah, you know, floppy drives are coming hard. I mean, you know, GoTex and stuff like that are really quite handy because they're, they're compatible with an awful lot of different machines, so they become quite convenient. So I've got probably half a dozen different GoTex machines, and I'll probably buy another ten or so to add to uh you know to PCs and to um the K pros and a whole bunch of, of things like that. Um I just like I love building you know, because my background is electronic engineering and soldering and those sort of things. So I love building I've built an Apple II from scratch. Like I bought a bare PCB from from uh, Taiwan, uh, sourced all the components and you know obviously using EPROMs rather than ROMs. But yeah, there's an awful lot of soldering on one of those boards. Uh, one interesting little thing I have got is a relay based computer. It doesn't actually have gates, it uses mechanical relays. Um, I waited years and years for that to become available, which it did eventually become available. And uh, oddly enough, that's on my project list. <laughs> uh, the one I got recently was a Challenger 1P, a, a higher scientific. Been chasing that for absolutely years and years, and eventually uh, I managed to source one. So I've got a, a family member who works with sheet metal work, so I'm going to see if he can build me, uh, you know, make me up a, a, an aluminium case and try and replicate that as close as possible to the original thing. Uh, the only thing is, it's, it's pretty well exactly the same. It uses EEPROMs and uh, uses Cherry switches rather than the originals that were available. And it's a, it's a all-in-one PCB. Yeah, it's a whopping you know, forty characters wide by twenty lines deep or sixteen lines deep. But once again, that's uh, a machine I cut my teeth on back in the, the either the late seventies or very early eighties, and it's just yeah, kind of got to have got to have one in my collection. And I'll, I'll never yeah, they they typically go for two or three thousand dollars. 
for a piece of crap effectively but uh so to build a replica for 500 bucks or whatever is uh you know i like the original where possible but a replica is is, is a good way of getting into it as well uh, a super 80 i've got a replica super 80 i've started building um yet another project um a dream a dream 6800 is another one um I was into uh, once I started on the ZX80, I sort of went back in time. So you get the ZX80, the ZX80 one going forward in time, but going back in time, they had uh, a couple of single board computers, and there was a guy who did a replica board for that. And once again, I've sourced all the components for that. It uh, was actually using a, a, a National Semiconductor Scamp microprocessor chip, um, which is one of the first machines I ever used to program. Interesting bit of hardware, very very fundamental, basic bit of hardware. Didn't have a stack, so if you wanted to do a subroutine jump, you'd have to save the address and then pull the address back rather than doing a subroutine jump, and it would put it on there and pull it back for you. So very, very crude, fundamental type stuff, but that uses a like a teeny-weeny little text instruments type seven-segment display for its display, and it's got a sort of keypad, and the guy has replicated just about everything. Some of the chips are almost impossible to come by. Put it together, it didn't work, and I just never had time to, to debug it. I've got a feeling I bought a Taiwanese scam microprocessor that probably is a you know a UART or something rather like that that they've managed to flog off. So, yeah, um, yet another project, so lots and lots of projects. But I do love building retro stuff, and I also love building modern stuff that emulates old hardware, you know, like floppy drive type things. I've got a, I can't think what it's called now, but it's a, it's a little device and it emulates a cassette unit. And so it has audio out, but you, you fill, fill it with effectively cassette images and then it injects that back into the original machine. And obviously it doesn't have to suffer the issues that cassette drives would. Is that uh, the SVI CAS? Which one, sorry? SVI CAS? The one little LCD screen? Yeah, that's the one in Australia? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of those. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it might have been the TZX Duino, which is another one which you can build. Oh, yes. but that's mainly, but that's mainly that's... aimed at uh, ZX Spectrums, and I think it uh, uses the uh, Arduino, as the name would suggest. It does, I reckon. I, but I reckon he's expanded it to be a bit more compatible with a few other different machines, and it's a matter of just loading the, the, the images effectively onto there, and then that, yeah, converts it to an audio stream, and you can inject it back into the into the PC or whatever it happens to be. I think it's really awesome that you're a purist, but actually takes the uh, the modern technology on board because you know you just can't afford to buy bloody million floppy drives and disks and pile alternatives. It's, I think the you know the retro's really come back yeah. in a way that you got you can access these things now. You know you can just whack a cartridge in the back of your sixty four and start playing games. I think it's really good for yeah. the community. How do you see the community's sort of changed in the last five ten years? Potentially, you've obviously been in it for a while. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of older people. Don't take that as an offence. Like us, they're sort of doing this sort of stuff and into it in a big way. But I think there's a, a, a new community of younger people that are sort of getting into it. And, uh, you know, you can run your Raspberry Pi or whatever and you can sort of do emulation of that sort of stuff. But I think they're actually getting into the... To, to the hardware side of things, which is good because it's part of history that if it wasn't for people like us would be lost forever as landfill. And whilst I've got four kids, not, not one of them is vaguely interested in anything that I do with electronics or IT. My, my, maybe my oldest son may be sort of interested in, in time. He better be because he's going to inherit an awful lot of gear at some stage. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's changing and it's, I think we're on a, a wave of new people. I mean, obviously when I was at the Adelaide Retro group it was half a dozen people it was very early in its days i don't know how big it is these days I, i've done a few speeches there but you know through presentations one was on you know soldering and, and that side of things the other one was my apple one machine that i, I bought in and I, I just got that busy i just couldn't afford the time to actually do it so um, there's some really interesting people there and it's good that they they do meet and they we share common interests and uh you know, people like us have got old war stories that we can tell to younger people who've just got into that side of things, but it's interesting that they've done. One thing that is changing, of course, the amount of hardware that's available is diminishing rapidly, so that's good for us if you've got a collection because it means it goes up in value. As far as machines go, I've probably got 200-plus different machines in various boxes. I need, I need to sit down and do a full inventory of what I actually got because I have no idea. I, I've got a vague idea, but I don't know. I think I'll look open a box and go, I remember that. I haven't seen that for years. Yeah, and oh, A lot of it's really based good. on yeah, it will be a it's really exciting job. time. It's, it's going to take weeks to unpack it all, but uh, yeah, looking forward exciting. to it. Yeah, Martin, look, we always like to ask our um, interviewees what's their, what's the grump? We are grumpy Oz Retro. There must be something out there that gives you the shits. 
Uh, we'll we'll limit that to one thing. So what, do you, what have you got um, for us? Dipshits who send stuff and don't pack it. And they say, oh, I've packed it really well for you. And it's got a bit of newspaper wrapped around it and it rattled around in a box. And when you get it, it's had the shit smashed out of it. And you think, wow, I've been searching for this for years and years. And I've got a handful of broken things. I get two monitors delivered last year, not packed properly, smashed. Um, I've had floppy drives for old Atari 400s and 800s got here, smashed. And the plastic is really brittle. It doesn't take much to to box it. I sent stuff interstate and the monitors, classically, your double box, lots of packing, no room for it to slide around. Um, I would like to think even if you drop one of my monitors that I'd packed, it would survive that that fall. That's my biggest thing, especially when you've been searching for so long and so hard for it and it gets there and you pick up the box and it rattle, 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 you think, oh, that's not going to be good. So that's my biggest gripe. And, and, and I guess another minor one is, is people who sell shit. You look at it and you think, oh, yeah, it looks all right from the photos and they don't show you the back that's missing that's been smashed and they don't show you that side of things. So you get it and you think, yeah, that's not good. They're my, they're my two biggest gripes. Final question, 6502 or Z80? 6502, that's where I started with. I have equal fondness for both of them. In fact, I was looking at a number plate that said 6502-Z80 in my car. I haven't done it, but I was thinking of that. So the two are... I've spent more time programming the 6502, so I have a slight preference for 6502 in this case. Thanks again to Martin for giving us his time. I could listen to him all day, Craig. Yeah, look, I'd love that Martin back again. I reckon he's probably got another bloody 50 stories within him somewhere, and especially when he starts building his cave, starts pulling out machines that he's probably forgotten about. I think there'd be some treasure in there for sure. Oh, definitely. Tell us what you think. Hit us up at grumpyozretro.com. Leave your feedback. Leave comments under the YouTube video on the Oz Retro Comp YouTube channel. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, see you later. Yeah, don't forget, stay retro.